This is Joseph Trevesi. Uh, I'm here with Bobby Startup. We are conducting this interview at Bobby's house in South Philadelphia. Today is June 19th, 2013, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Bobby. Hello, how you doing? So uh, why don't we start with uh, where you were born and when. Uh, okay. <laughs> Go back a few years. I was born um, in a British military hospital between Cairo and Heliopolis in Egypt. Because my father was uh, in the RAF, he was a, a, a navigator on the uh, bombers that, that bombed uh, Berlin at night uh, at the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. And uh, he met my mother at a, at a, at a uh, ballroom dancing school in Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. She had, a, her and her family had escaped the Nazis five years before. And he had been shot down three times, so they put him on R&R, uh, &R, and he sent him to this ballroom dancing school to calm down his nerves, I guess, you know. Right. <laughs> and he met my mother there. <laughs> and then they made you. So I was born in a hospital, in a British military hospital in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then I guess your parents eventually came to the States, or did, were they in Britain yeah, we, for a while? Yeah, well, my father went, uh, we went back to England, and my mother had relatives in, in Philadelphia, so we came to Philly. When I was about three years old, through around 48, right. 1948. What neighborhood were you in? Um, Winfield. Where is that? I don't know. Uh, well, originally it was uh, near the Ballot Golf Course. That's the where my uncle lived. He was this, uh, a union, big union guy with the Daily News mm -hmm. uh, shop steward or something like that. Yeah. And uh, then we moved to 52nd and Parkside, uh, and then uh, to uh, near Overbrook High School. Well, 54th and C near 54th and City Line, St. Joe's, okay. mm -hmm. around yeah. there. Right. So basically, it was all in West Philly, you know, West mm -hmm. Philly. Yeah. And then you were going to tell me the story of your, your last name. Oh, my father traced the, the, uh, the name down to uh, about the time of William the Conqueror. It was was uh, to three different families that lived 10, 10 miles apart. So I imagine that it was all from one. And it was originally uh, a hyphenated name, uh, Anglo-Saxon name, Steerstep, mm -hmm. which meant people lived on a hill. Right. And then through this, I guess through the centuries, it became Startup, because the original pronunciation is Startup, mm -hmm. rather than Startup. Right. But I got so fed up with, correcting people that I just used startup and left it at that mm -hmm. and then when punk came along here I had the perfect name <laughs> yeah that's right I didn't even have to change, change it yeah I always assumed it was just like a punk name <laughs> well, everybody <laughs> does yeah yeah uh, a lot of times I had to show people my passport or some kind of ID to show and prove it like mm -hmm. you know this is my real name <laughs> yeah. probably popular when the it internet. came in handy finally after yeah. you know all those you know growing up as a kid of course you can imagine all the different variations you know <laughs> yeah you know Start downs, you know, all kinds of stardust, you know, a million yeah. different variations yeah. you heard as a kid growing up. So then it came handy, you know, it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I imagine everybody remembered me. Yeah. You know, that's because it was an unusual name. Yeah, no one's going to forget the fact that. that. You know, the fact that my father had to trace down uh, that practically anybody with that last name has to be related to me. Mm hmm. Not that there's many of them around. <laughs> right. 
So I imagine that Young you came into an interest in music pretty early then. Pardon? Did you come into an interest in music rather early in life? Well, um, I don't know how it happened, really. Uh, I think it was rock and roll I first got into was probably because uh, I had a babysitter. It was, I remember, uh, and she, would, she was also the first one to turn me on to a steak sandwich. So how old are you around this time then? I uh, was seven. Okay. And she put on this radio station, and I remember the first song I really remember is G by the Crows. Mm-hmm. And like uh, the chords doing Shaboom, those were the, the R- for some reason she was into R&B and she was also into, uh, I forget what's his name, uh, Johnny Ray, mm-hmm. who was really big with the girls back, teen, teen girls back then. Her name was Lucille Spector. And I remember she lived around the corner from me when I lived at 52nd and Parkside. And from that, we used to go to this uh, Woolworths that was at 52nd and Market Street. That was a big shopping area back then. And uh, I would get like, a, I think, 25 cents allowance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I usually would go in there like uh, they would have these uh, like comic books three for ten cents because they would tear off the title Mm -hmm. because they were old outdated instead of sending them back the whole magazine they would just send back the titles and that's how they get refunded for them Mm -hmm. so they would sell them for like three for a dime for the old ones so i'd buy like you know comic books and probably a tin soldier and then and i used to buy these records like golden golden books used to have these little kids records Mm -hmm. where they would have the story on the record yeah and instead of buying that, I started buying rock and roll records. I would buy them in a 10 cent rack, I guess, same kind of deal, the old ones, mm-hmm. you know, the ones that they couldn't send back, and the, or uh, I guess promo copies, whatever. And that's how I started buying records when I was like, uh, I think I was around eight or nine years old. And uh, So you're picking up what I kind had of records my own, you're getting? Yeah, for some reason we had like a, another record player and they gave it to me. And it had a, ra- uh, a, a radio and a short band radio and everything. It was all in one big unit, mm-hmm. like a piece of furniture. Yeah. That's what it basically was. Yeah. And I guess they had gotten a new one, my parents, and they gave me the old one. So I started, I had my own record player when I was like nine and ten years old. So, so what is nine, ten-year-old you? What are you buying? What records are you picking up? I was buying R&B records. Mm-hmm. And, I was, uh, and I was listening to, uh, at night... Or whenever I would I would listen to whatever stations I could get on the on the radio, and I wasn't really into my parents' kind of music, you know. Like they were into like you know, Perry Como, G- Giselle McKenzie, and all that kind of stuff, and Dinah Shore. Mm-hmm. So we used to see that on television. So I'd always be listening for other stuff, which you know was the R and B, the rock and roll, you know. So that's how I got into that, and then I would buy these. Uh, they had these magazines called Hit Parader, and some other one where they had the lyrics for the songs. Mm-hmm. So I'd go out and buy them, and because I was you know, learning how to read and everything, you know, a little kid. Yeah. And it helped me learn how to read and understand things. Uh, that and comic books. Mm-hmm. Did you have <laughs> any my comics parents were you... European, so yeah. it was like they weren't very like uh, you know nothing was off limits to me. You know, they didn't. Uh, they didn't mind that I listened to the music. They didn't care about it or the comic books or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they were cool with it. 
Did you find that a lot of the kids that you were you were friends with who maybe had an interest in the music, their parents weren't quite as accepting of their interest in that? Yeah, well, later, I guess later on when uh, what I'd learned to do early was uh, when I would buy the record, the 45, the first thing I would do when I'd get home would I'd play the flip side because mm-hmm. I already knew what the A side said and I liked that. I want to see if I, I got two songs, yeah. you know. So I was big <clears> on B sides. So later on, it kind of became a thing where kids would have parties, you know, and and they would have these RCA uh, 45 changers where you'd stack on about 10, mm-hmm. 15 45s yeah, yeah. and it would automatically, you know, jump, drop down. And uh, I would always run over there to see what records they had. And if I knew the 45, the B-side, I'd, I'd put the B-sides on, all mm-hmm. the B-sides I knew. Yeah. And, you know, the kids would go like, Wow, where'd that come? You know, but that's your records, the other side, because they never listened. I never understood that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's my first DJ kind of experience right. was like, and big music experience was back then because I always like turning on people to other uh, other songs and uh, and I would play the and the ones that I didn't know I would put on the B side just to hear them and if it wasn't any good I'd quickly check. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Was there any feeling that this music was having a corrosive effect on society at this time, you know, early 1950s? Well, in the 50s, they, you know, it was all about, uh, it was bad for it, you know, like they were trying to get rid of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. They felt it was, uh, it was aiding juvenile delinquency, you know, the whole thing, the comic books, just like today what they, they do with video games. Mm-hmm. It's like the same thing over and over, only a different thing each time period. Right. You know, in the 50s, it started with comic books and rock and roll. You know, that was evil. And then, you know, like, I don't know, and now it's video games. You know, it's the same thing. Like, you know, they always, society's always trying to blame somebody else, something else yeah, for, for, its for own people's problem. problems, yeah. you know, without really hitting it, you know, hitting it right. But yeah, there was like a, in fact, the record industry tried to destroy rock and roll. There was a, uh, there's a whole big thing between ASCAP and uh, and a lot of the major record labels uh, um, spearheaded by Mitch Miller at, at Columbia uh, tried to uh, get rid of BMI, which was basically the uh, uh, music publishers for most of the rock and roll and, and a lot of black music too. And... Uh, because ASCAP, you, they wouldn't take you just because you published a song. You, they, they were more elitist about it. Mm-hmm. So if if you didn't fit in with their program, then you went to BMI, and that's where most of the black artists had to what had to do. Mm-hmm. And so they tried to destroy BMI, but what what happened was a lot of it turned out that a half of the country music artists were on BMI, mm-hmm. the ones that could, weren't accepted by ASCA. Right. So when Congress tried to, you know, get rid of BMI and everything and rock and roll, they got, they got messed up because a lot of Southern Democrats wouldn't vote, vote for, for mm-hmm. these bills because some of their favorite country artists were part of BMI. So that's why rock and roll still exists. But they tried to... They, they try to make Calypso as a replacement for rock and roll. It's really funny. <laughs> and looking back on it, you'll see there's all these mo- movies and, uh, 
and records that came out with Calypso, you know, Harry Belafonte became huge in 50, around that time. Mm -hmm. And there was these movies and everything. They were trying to get the youth to get into Calypso as like, you know, instead of rock and roll, they tried to nurture them. It didn't, didn't them. quite work. It didn't work, because yeah. they thought it was going to be a fad. But, uh, you know, and then you had all the religious leaders that hated rock and roll. You know, mm -hmm. they were always, you know, it was evil. It was right. the devil's music. Right. Anything that had to do with black people had to be the devil's music anyway, you know. Because mm -hmm. the white southerners back then were pretty, pretty racist. So, moving forward a few years into your teenage years, when do you start to go to see the, any of these bands performing um, that you were interested in? Well, luckily for, for me, being in Philadelphia... We had American Bandstand. We started at 2.30 in the afternoon and went till 5 o'clock, mm -hmm. two and a half hours. And you had a lot of, even though it was a lot of lip syncing, you had a lot of, all these artists would come on there. They would have like about four different live artists come on there and they would lip sync to their, so you got to see visuals that way. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing James Brown on, I mean, everybody. Elvis was probably the only guy that never went on, on Dick Clark's, well, it was before Dick Clark was Bob Horn. But, and you learned how to do all the dances and everything and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Was it so broadcast first shows locally I, at first, or, or was it always national? Uh, no, it, it was, uh, it started here in 52, mm -hmm. basically. And uh, it didn't go national until way late, way later. Uh, and then, of course, it got ruined when it moved to California, because California kids never could dance like East Coast kids. What do you think no way. That, what do you think no, that not was? even close. Not even close. Why do you think uh, Philly had the advantage there? I don't know, but if you look at the movies, like all these Hollywood movies, and you see the way these kids dance, and they, they all look goofy. You uh -huh. know what I mean? They never got it right. Yeah. But anything from the East Coast, they got it right. You know, like, you know, Blackboard Jungle and some of those other, mm -hmm. you know, more the East Coast kind of teenage movies. They all seem to be more about the bad kids, too, the yeah. ones on the East Coast. Like the Young Savages was another one, but uh, I don't I don't know why, but uh, that's how it seemed. But they used to have these rock and roll caravan shows back then, where it would be like you know a whole bunch of acts, like you know ten or twelve acts, mm -hmm. and they would only like do with two or three numbers, right. and they would have there would be an orchestra too. For the ones that didn't, that weren't bands, didn't have their own bands. So they're playing in a large hall. Uh, and yeah, they were playing like, uh, like the Civic Center was a big, big place back then. Um, but the first shows I actually started going to probably were, I didn't really start going to shows till I was about fifteen or sixteen. And they had rock and roll shows at the State Theater, which was at Fifty Second and Walnut. And uh, what was the neighborhood like then around 52nd? It was, it was mixed back then because this is uh, in the early 60s. It was, it was pretty much a black neighborhood at that point, but uh, you still had a lot of white people that uh, that still shopped in that area. But it was it was already starting to change. Uh, but they would have uh, I remember going to see Frankie Lyman and uh, the Marvelettes and all these other different acts there. So you had the State Theater, and you also had the Uptown in North Philly. The Uptown I started going to when I was 16 or 17. See the Vibrations and James Brown and stuff like that. But that was right on North Broad Street. And that was, 
there would be like a handful of white kids here, you know. But the neighborhood was largely black. Oh, it was all black, and right. all the people went there. It was almost like it would be ninety percent black mm -hmm. for any any show. So when you go in there as one of the few white people, do you personally feel uncomfortable, or the people, you know, well, are they surprised to see you there? Or how's it? I went to Overbrook High School, so I didn't have a problem because my high school was seventy percent black in nineteen sixty. Mm -hmm. So uh, I didn't have a problem with that because I kind of. Uh, could get along with black people I knew I was street smart you know right. that's basically what it comes down mm -hmm. to you know if you're street smart you could go there if you weren't street smart you didn't go there because yeah you probably project an awkwardness if you're not street smart yeah, people right. pick yeah. up on that but if you if you acted like you belonged you they were cool with you you know especially if you're digging their music you know and that's what it yeah. was all about plus I knew all the DJs everything I mean not that I knew the DJs but I mean from listening on the radio because back then uh, radio was segregated too you had uh, you had your black stations and you had your white stations, mm -hmm. and the same thing with the music. Like on uh, the big white stations back then were uh, WIBG, which was ninety nine, and uh, and WFIL, is AM radio, and because uh, FM was all classical music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that, that's what all yeah. was on FM back then, and. Uh, but on on, on Wibbage, WIBG, they had like High Lit was on there and, and a lot of other, you know, good DJs, but they're all white and basically the music was white except some some stuff crossed over, you know. But if you want to hear like original versions of some, some stuff, you'd have to listen to WHAT or WDAS. Mm -hmm. And they had Jimmy Bishop on there and Georgie Woods and Kay Williams and um, Jocko from New York did a show. He was Jocko Henderson and was one of the all-time great. That's where uh, Wolf, Wolf, Wolfman Jack must have gotten his whole shtick from him. Okay. And so did Jerry Blavitt. Mm -hmm. Jerry Blavitt got a lot of his shtick from him. His rhyming stuff. It was all from Jocko. He was from New York. We also worked out of Philly, too. So you had these DJs, too. So... It's just, you know, you listen to both, you know, to, to get an all-around feel for music. And I was a, mu I don't know, I guess I was a music junkie from, since I was a little kid for some reason. And my parents never uh, discouraged me. I took piano lessons. I remember teaching myself how to play Bye Bye Love on the piano and Love Me Tender. Mm -hmm. And I had a black piano teacher. And this was back in the mid-50s, you know, which was like... I guess pretty much not the regular normal yeah, thing, right. but he was a really nice man and he taught me a lot and uh, I remember the first sheet music he bought me was uh, Johnny Mathis, Chances Are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you still play? Do you, do you still play? No, I stopped playing w way too young. Mm -hmm. You know, I just wanted to go out and do things instead of taking lessons and practicing plus I you know I was never going to be a great piano player right did you think of taking up any of the other instruments and but I just had so a thing music? with I always thought about it, but I never had the time mm -hmm. that was with me because I I there's too many things to do that I didn't want to get stuck in one thing right yeah that's what happened with me with that mm -hmm. but uh, so I was always in, always into music from uh, from the get-go
and uh, I don't know. The first time I DJed was, uh, was I think back in '66. This guy uh, R.J. Ron Joseph he used to be one of the original dancers on American Bandstand, and he had a TV show for a while on on one of his UHF stations, you know, mm -hmm. and. He always wanted to be another Dick Clark, you know. He opened up this uh, this place at 40th and Walnut called uh, RJ's Inagogo. And he was trying to make it like, you know, like Shindig or Hullabaloo was, that kind yeah. of feel. And uh, I would be in the back room with two RCA, <laughs> two RCA uh, record changers, 45 changers. And what I would do is, uh, you didn't have headphones back then, mm -hmm. first of all. you got to remember that. Yeah, so how are you kind of cueing these? Or getting these? I was just cueing it up. You know, I'd try and guess where it started. And I would hold my finger on, on, on top of the, the record so it wouldn't move mm -hmm. until the other one ended. Then as soon as the other one, i lift up my finger. Right. But it would always be on play. You know, it would be on play. So it was like, you know, it was just... But of course, you know... You always had the, like the little bit of whirl at the beginning. Yeah, and then it hit. <laughs> but that's how we did it back then. It was 40th and Walnut. Because instead of because I didn't want to waste the time between the time it dropped down. Mm -hmm. I didn't like. Yeah, to me that awkward. the gap offended me. Yeah, yeah, kind of disjointing. Yeah. Uh, what was 40th and Market? Because the only like place they had the kind of uh, turntables they they were in record studios, you know, or uh, radio studios where they had those. There's uh, there's kind of uh, I don't know if they even had them with direct drive then. They might have done the same thing, but it had a more sophisticated system going on. Mm -hmm. I don't know because first direct drive uh, turntables where you could actually turn and spin a record around and cue it up. I remember it was like in '77, '78, around '78. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't think they had them before then. Uh, so 40th and Market was where you were doing this. What was it was 40th and Walnut. Okay, 40th and Walnut. Penn Campus. Okay, right. Because right. it was on the Penn Campus. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, I just did that for a little while. And then uh, I got I got a, a job one summer. Uh, it was a city thing where they had this music festival down at JFK Stadium. What year is And this? Schmitz was a sponsor. And I, need, I was out of work at the time, mm -hmm. and I found out about this job where we could go down there, uh, help build build the, the stage, part of the music festival. It was a job for the summer. So I thought, like, oh, this is interesting because it's outdoors, you know. I could get a tan <laughs> <laughs> while I'm working. Yeah. <laughs> Girls will love that. <laughs> and it turned out to be a really interesting thing. Uh, this is before the Electric Factory. So uh, it was a city-sponsored thing, and they had, it would be different acts, uh, I think there were like concerts like three or four times a week, I can't remember now, but it was all kinds of things. So we had to build these, uh, what is it, Dino? You want to go out? Excuse me. Okay, I'll pause this. A pause. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we were at the festival. I was going to tell you about the festival. Yeah, festival. So this festival uh, had these uh, was using a Buckminster Fuller 
uh, design. Do you know who Buck, Bucky Fuller is? Mm-hmm. He's a, that architect, famous architect. Yeah. And it was uh, using brass tubular tetrahedrons to build this enormous stage, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and his dressing rooms were made out of these, uh, I don't know, very, very geometric kind of thing. It was like we built these, and they were made out of, out of sort of like the special kind of cardboard that was coated on once on both sides with something to to uh, for the weather and everything. Mm-hmm. But they were made out of cardboard. These were the dressing rooms. They were right. really these weird futuristic kind of designs. Uh-huh. You know, that that would be all the dressing rooms for all these artists that would perform there. And uh, the guy that was in charge of the building was uh, this guy Ian, who was a former student of Bucky Fuller. And he even had Bucky Fuller come down yeah. to see see it, you know. Bucky Did he approve came, of it? He came down and I met him and everything. It was like really amazing, yeah. you know. Later on, I even appreciated it more when I realized how enormously famous this guy was. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a really nice guy. And we built this stage and we built this, uh, this whole other area behind it. Uh, and a guy named Dave Hadler was in charge on the city side, uh, who would later I would work with the electric factory. Dino, quiet, quiet, not now. And uh, now the guys, they brought in a couple guys to handle the stage production. One of them was Chipmunk, and the other was uh, Steve, I think, Rosenberg, who lay, he's, these two guys were the guys that put together the physical part of Woodstock. Yeah. So all the guys who worked on Woodstock were working at this festival. The and, main, and what year was the, the main festival? guys. This was 67. Okay, right. I guess it was, yeah, 67, summer of 67. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I got to work with these. Chipmunk was his light, lighting technician. He became world famous. He did the stone, everybody, just about anybody famous. In the entertainment business, Frank Sinatra, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's how well known he became later on. And Steve opened up a, a place in Boston called the Boston Tea Party, which was their equivalent to the Electro Factory here. Mm-hmm. So that's where I learned. I learned. I became the assistant stage manager for, for those guys. So that's how I learned, you know, how to do all that stuff. And the acts who were there were like, they had... Uh, Ray Charles and Ray Letts, mm-hmm. Judy Garland with Count Basie in the orchestra. Uh, I mean, uh, Charles Lloyd Quartet, uh, a bunch of a whole, all these j- jazz greats and, and uh, Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and rock and roll like The Who, and stuff like that. The, uh, Country Jonah Fish. The box tops. I mean, all the, a, a complete variety of acts, as you can imagine, because it was mm-hmm. for the public, you know. Right. So, so they would have like maybe three different concerts, four different concerts a week, but they would get different crowds, and it was all free. Mm-hmm. So people came there, and there was a free show. So the city, the city the bill paid for, this? for it. Yeah. The city paid. And for, for it. how long was this supposed to run? This went on for two months during the summer, mm-hmm. ju- and that was always uh, July and to- August. Right, right. In June we built it. Mm-hmm. In July and August the shows went on. I mean, Judy Garland. I got to see Judy Garland and work with Count Basie. I couldn't believe that. Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. Two months before she passed away, before she OD'd. Oh, wow. 
Um, but you would not believe the men in the audience were like groupies. They were they were ah! throwing their underwear, you know, just like you know, just like when Tom Jones was there, uh -huh. and the women were throwing their underwear. The men were throwing at Judy Garland. Right? <laughs> was it was it, it was largely really gay wild. audience for her at the time? Was the like the male attention ah! primarily gay even then, or did that? Oh come yeah, yeah. It was, uh, but it was not only gay men, mm -hmm. but it was also like straight men because you. You could tell, you know, back in those days, it was pretty much, you know, the flamboyant ones, you know, the the, the real flaming queen, the queens were there and all that stuff. But there was also straight guys there too, because you know, you could just tell these guys weren't like the same, but they were just as fanatical, I guess, from their childhood or whatever, or from when they were teenagers, they must have been in love with, you know, because it was all older guys, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's guys that probably were in love with her with like when she was in her twenties, you know, and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. When they were, it was pretty funny. Mm -hmm. But Ray Charles, you know, working with him was that was that was amazing, and all these other people and these jazz guys, and so it was a good experience. And from there, I uh, Electric Factory opened up in in the fall, and they asked me to be their stage manager. So it's fall of '67. Yeah. Okay. So that's how I became the stage manager there for Electro Factory because, from my working at the at, at the festival. And the funny thing is, like, I didn't know anything about electricity or amps or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I was totally clueless. Right. Like, if someone wanted me to fix the ramp, I could. I would look at it like, "Were you nuts?" Uh -huh. <laughs> I had no concept to fixing any of that stuff or. Or microphones or anything, you know. So what was your I, I was, realm of knowledge was in that? I had no technical knowledge whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I just was real organized. So, and that was the thing they wanted, I guess, Electro Factory, because they would do two shows a night. We'd have three bands. So you figure you open at 7 o'clock, and you're doing two shows, and you, and you had to get people out by... Uh, I guess it was by midnight or 11.30, or I, I forget, whatever it was. But you had to get... Six six shows that basically six acts you had to get in in one night. Yeah, that is amazing. So, I just you know from what my experience with these you know doing this festival, mm -hmm. I took that and and kind of transferred it into because there at these uh, at the festivals you would have to do quick changes. We had things on uh, on these ro uh, rollers. We had like the complete setup for the band or the orchestra or whatever would be set up on a big platform behind it. Mm -hmm. on rollers and then we have ropes and we just r roll it in mm -hmm. and and then connect it uh with the other with the other part with a little little piece to connect it and then and plug it in in the back and everything was set like boom right. so you made a change like the act was over you rolled out one and the other one rolled in yeah. so i kind of took that concept to electric factory we couldn't do it there mm -hmm. because we didn't have that kind of stage so i just did a whole thing with uh with the set, setting up the bands where I'd set up like you peel off one and put it behind the other so it was just a constant peeling off and then at the end of the night you just when the second show after the first act you know we'd peel it off the stage mm -hmm. but for the first act you had to for the first show you had to so and you had to have as little time as possible in between so you know like five minutes is the most you wanted between acts yeah yeah so were you in college at the time did you go to college oh I went to Temple University for two years after high school, uh, and 
I got I was really bored. Uh, dropped out, and then uh, I almost got a. I didn't feel like getting drafted, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I figured if I was if I was going to wind up in Vietnam, I want to be able to take care of myself. I don't want to be, you know, I wanted to survive. Yeah, yeah, good idea. So I figured that was the smartest thing to do. So what year was this <laughs> that you you joined the Marines? I never went to no. I got out after I got a medical discharge in the Marine while I was in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So I, got, I, lo- I I lucked out. And then I became an anti-war protester. I was involved with that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, and then I, but when I came back, then I went, I went to photography school. So about the same time I started working electric factory, I was going to photography school in the, in the morning from eight, eight to, uh, till 12, I was in school. And then from one, one to five, I was working in a clothing store. And then I would, at uh, five o'clock, I'd. I'd be at the electric factory loading in the bands. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty busy schedule. So I was imagine working. Those nights I, are running pretty I, late. Electric factory was open like anywhere from four to four to six nights a week. Mm-hmm. The only time I don't think I'm trying to remember if we were open on Sundays. We might not have been. Blue laws might have been in effect then. Yeah, I was really busy, but I was young. You know, doing a lot of drugs. Yeah. You know. What were your drugs? Of every choice? drug there was. Do you have any favorites amongst those? Anyway, any favorites amongst the drugs that you were using back then? Well, pot was pot, pot and hash, and and uh, back in those days, I guess. But I was doing, you know, speed uppers, downers, you know, acid and stuff like that. Uh, when the Grateful Dead were Electric Factory, uh, the guy that was the sound man was uh, Osley. Mm-hmm. Who's right. the one of the, the, the LSD guy? Yeah. So Ozzy would always bring like a bag full of orange sunshine of LSD something. with yeah, him, no, no. and he would, you know, he'd give me a handful of white lightnings and stuff like that. So uh, I, I tripped well over a hundred times. Do you think you that, know, that the good, that, really good stuff? Mm-hmm. Do you think that that benefited you in some way, as far as your your way of perceiving a the little world bit? Moving? Mm-hmm. But I could see how it could be harmful to people too, right? Because you know. It, it was it, it was easy to get you know get yourself involved in a bad trip you know because if you had people around you that just could make could make you feel that way you know sometimes and it depended on your state of mind so I understood you know I felt lucky that uh, that that uh, I I didn't really have any really bad trips you know that affected me that way mm-hmm. you know some that were bummed me out a little bit but like you know yeah. But I was more careful about where I did my acid. You know, some people weren't. I can't imagine. Doing I didn't that do at it. Work. I didn't. I never did it when I was working. You know. Yeah. Because I knew that wasn't a good combination. Although one time it happened to me by accident, at uh, at the Palestra uh, Jefferson Airplane Show, we were Electric Factory did uh, did their whole tour. Booked their tour, mm-hmm. and uh, they were the booking agents. And we also had this thing called Festival Group, which was our own sound company, which did tours. So uh, we were doing uh, Jefferson Airplane at the Palestra, and uh, they uh, they would 
they they did long shows like the dead did so they would do like an intermission so intermission hits right mm-hmm. and uh i'm up on a stage checking everything out you know and you know, there's a pitcher of water next to spencer dryden's uh-huh. drum kit right <laughs> and this is also the first time he had a, a drum machine the first time i ever saw one uh first time i saw it used on stage he he was the first airplane was the first group to use it in co- in coordination with, with the you know, drum set. Would that be what, 68 or so? Would that be 1968 or so? Or, yeah, I or, guess or it was about 68, yeah. somewhere around there, 68, 69. Mm-hmm. So I took a swig out of, <laughs> out of his uh, water pitcher, right? Uh-huh. And you know, Spencer Dryden's sitting there, like, you know, he's just adjusting his everything, and he starts laughing. And I said to him, well, what's, so fun? what's so funny? He says, well, you know, you just took a swig of LSD. <laughs> <laughs> They're all tripping, these motherfuckers. <laughs> how, yeah, how do they manage to keep it together performing? Oh, by the end of the show, I'll yeah. tell you, it was really... Well, I was, you know, I got prepared, you know. But it was just weird, you know, because I didn't want... I couldn't let Larry know about it, Larry Maggot, you know, Electro Factory. I couldn't let them know that I was fucked up. Mm-hmm. You know that you know I got dosed, and because uh, I wanted to keep my job. Yeah, yeah. Well, not exactly your fault. But, no, but uh, yeah. still, it, it still wasn't like, assumed that all staff and all attendees and all band members were. Uh, so I kept it. You know, like I somehow I kept it going, and since I was like the boss, I had a couple guys under me. So mm-hmm. for some things, I was afraid that I might not able to handle I pass it on to them but uh, I I was tripping my brains out by the end of the show Mm -hmm. it was pretty pretty unique that was the only time it ever happened to me uh, as far as like working you know so did Philadelphia have a strong countercultural scene in late 60s into early 70s was there a oh yeah it was a vibrant scene the scene started with the folk folk stuff and the folk clubs before Mm -hmm. that like Woody's Truck Stop and stuff like that would play, where Todd Rundgren came out of, you know. They were, it was like, a, there was a scene where he had started, like, you know, in 65, mm-hmm. you know. Actually, before that, the folk scene, before that, I would say probably started about 62, something like that, but I wasn't involved in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I did, I first went to my first folk club in 62, it was, uh, it was, uh, uh, the Birdcage on 20th that? Street. Mm-hmm. 20th and... Uh, Esther something. I forget her last name was uh, the one that ran it. She was a folk folk singer. Uh, and uh, on television you had you had Hoot Nanny, but like it wasn't like the protest scene yet, you know. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of building up to that, you know. But uh, there was a pretty vibrant, you know, folk club scene here in Philly. There had, downtown there had to be about five or six really, really happening places, places that were going on. And then, uh, and of course, the, the music scene in Philly was always there because you had the American Bandstand, and you had all the doo-wop band, all these bands coming, and jazz, so many jazz musicians came from Philly. I mean, it's mind-boggling how, how what was going on. And even before that, you know, it was like, you know, RCA used to have a, a, a major recording studio at uh, Six and Lombard. Mm-hmm. You know, is that that uh, major artists? You know, that recorded at 
you know, some of the biggest artists, RSA, Enrico Caruso, and and um, Woody Guthrie, and people like that recorded at these. Uh, not Woody Guthrie. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jimmy Rogers mm-hmm. recorded at Six and Lombard. He came off yeah, this album. I think he's largely forgotten. His great songs, yeah. besides, were recorded. Either in Philadelphia or in Camden, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody remembers. <laughs> so there's always been like a thing here, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, actually, you know, from my study of uh, of, of history uh, of, of music, uh, back in this, the seventeen seventeen seventies, the first hymn, you know, like the the only music back then was basically religious music or ballads, you know. Uh, which were kind of like folk songs, and the first uh, uh, recorded, uh, you know, compilation of uh, of uh, of black hymns for the black churches was done in Philadelphia at the Reverend Allen on uh, on Sixth Street, yeah. right, Sixth and Lombard, I think mm-hmm. it is his church. So the history of music and of of the United States, you know, is yeah, right pretty here. prominent in Philadelphia. So you got all the roots here, uh-huh. <laughs> and you had all the and you know, when I was in high school, there was all these bands, you know, like all these people out of Philly, like guys from my neighborhood, the, the Dovells. Mm-hmm. And then you had in Germantown, you had uh, Tammy, uh, Tammy Montgomery, yeah. Tammy, uh, Thomas C. Mc- oh, Tammy Terrell, I mean. Okay. That's uh-huh. a re- yeah. stage name. And the uh, Delphonics. Mm-hmm. And the Three Degrees went to Overbrook High School and stuff like that. And where I went to, and it was this constant thing, and Gamble Huff went to Overbrook High School too, and the guys that that, that financed Fully International, guys that were, that were from my neighborhood, uh, Steve Bernstein and uh, Al Rubens. So I don't know, it's just, it seemed to be in the in the air, mm-hmm. in the water, I don't right, know. Right, right. Water, the way you pronounce it, Fully water, 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 it's yeah. in the water. Yeah. <laughs> So were there were there enclaves, countercultural enclaves in Philly, like certain neighborhoods where people would live, or where there'd be a lot of the more countercultural music coming out of? In, well, at the time, it kind of, well, South Philly was the first because of when when they had the uh, with the Frankie Avalon and the Fabian mm-hmm. and Bobby Rydell and all those. Right, all that was Italians. like the first yeah, first neighborhood. Italians, right. So like you had that, but actually the black neighborhood was the South Philly too. We had like the silhouettes that did get a job, and mm-hmm. and Dizzy Dizzy Gillespie, you know, lived at Six and Pine. He was from Six and Pine. But uh, I mean, Billie Holiday, the famous jazz singer, she she lived at the hotel right over here at Seventeenth and uh, South. Yeah, used to be a hotel right yeah. there. Uh, yeah, I you know you had. I guess it was certain neighborhoods, South Philly and West Philly, were probably and in Germantown, were were the hotbeds for uh, music. I guess that it's hard to think of anything in happening days. in Germantown now, but uh, it's interesting to think of it happening then. Well, you had Tammy Terrell and the Delphonics and Linda Creed, who wrote all the all the great lyrics for the Stylistics. Mm-hmm. She went to uh, Germantown too at the same time. I don't know why, but that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the rock and rollers came from the Northeast, though. Mm-hmm. I think most of the original rock and roll guys, 
I'm talking about like the white rock and rollers. I would say northeast in the suburbs. Because mm-hmm. Todd, Todd Rungrow is from Upper Darby. Uh, American Dream are all from the northeast, Mayfair, around there. Did you know Rundgren? Did you have any? Did you know Todd Rundgren? Oh yeah, I knew him real well. Okay. It's it, the guy who managed Woody's Truck Stop, and and then the guy that managed originally managed uh, the Nas were both guys from my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paul Fishkin, who went on to you know go out, start his own record label and everything, was Stevie Nicks's manager and a lot of other people, you know. And, uh, yeah, so, like, I knew this, you know, just from hanging around, because back then, you know, like, not every, not that many people had long hair, mm-hmm. so you tend to be friends with everybody that had long hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, in fact, I was with Todd Rundgren and Paul Fishkin when, uh, before he produced the New York Dolls, uh, I was hanging out. Uh, I was going to this club up in New York uh, called the Mercer Art Center, and it was this old, old art Greek kind of building, art building or whatever. And that's where uh, the dolls were playing there. The stilettos, suicide stilettos were uh, Debbie Harry's group originally. What she was a background singer in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Gordon was playing there back then. Uh, all kinds of different bands. Uh, probably Kiss probably played there too. So they this played early, there in the Diplomat Hotel. Or what, what year was this uh, around? Well, it was a scene between. This is like between '73 and '76 mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, and Suicide. It was a three three piece back then. I first saw them there. And uh, the New York Dolls were like a regular uh, uh, regular attraction there. So. Uh, Todd was deciding whether he wanted to, to produce the New York Dolls. So Paul was going up there. And Paul knew I was, I knew the place. So uh, the three of us went up there, and that's when he decided to produce the Dolls. You know, do the first album. Good choice. But uh, and then uh, I think a few weeks later, the building collapsed. The oh. Mercer Art Center just during the daytime oh okay so nobody was in no there one got hurt yeah, right, yeah. thank god cause, right. but all all the scenesters were there like the, the pre-scenesters you know before it happened like because back then it was like um, Max's Kansas City mm-hmm. and the Mercer Art Center and Max's you know it was like Velvet Underground held you know held court in there right so I guess we'll move forward a bit from from Electric Factory but there's a point where you uh, muted there's a point where you branch off to do your own shows, to you know, book clubs. So can you tell me about how, how that came to be? You know, how you came to do things outside of Electric Factory? Oh, outside of Electric Factory mm-hmm. and that yeah. stuff? Uh, and then when would that start? You know, how did that Yeah, uh, I, I guess it was because uh, I had uh, got uh, separated from my first wife. And a friend of mine just moved back from California. He was living in San Francisco for years. And I, uh, my mother asked me to move in with my grandmother because she had Alzheimer's, the onset of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So she wanted me to move into her house. Uh, 
to look over and make sure everything was out in Bell Kinwood. So my friend Ivan was crashing on my couch. So I said, oh, let's, you know, why don't you move in with me or my grandma's because there was three floors. So, you know, he, he could, it was like a, or four floors. He had a little attic space or something like he had a couple rooms to himself, and it wouldn't cost him anything to get him back on, get get working again. And he went to start working at the, at the uh, at the hot club, because at the time it was a jazz. It was, it was just going to open up, and it was going to be all jazz music. To what year is David that? David Carroll was opening it. What year know, is that? With uh, Mel Glickstein, and they, uh, at that time I was working. Uh, different clothing stores or something, you know, just something to do, shoe stores, you know. And uh, do you there recall was nothing the year, going on. What year this was uh, we're talking about? What, what year are we talking about here? We're talking about like uh, 76. Okay. 75, mm-hmm. 76. And I was bored with, you know, the music scene was getting kind of boring and repetitious. Uh, the only thing's good, you know, like the glam thing had oriented. New York Dolls were about the only things out there, but... Uh, even they're they're starting to fall apart after Malcolm Claren, you know, he took over and did that whole thing with the uh, with the Soviet Army kind of thing, the red, the whole red thing, which didn't go over too well. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he was uh, he was bringing his artsy thing, you know, that that uh, that French movement that was uh, anarchists. I forget what they were called. Oh, the Situationists. Yeah, situationalist. Yeah, yeah. He was trying to bring that to you know into rock and roll, and I had known Malcolm from the clothing business from from the early seventies because I was in, involved in the clothing business too because I was designing clothes back then. So I knew him from seventy three before he got involved. I yeah. met it. That's where I first met him. What were your impressions? In fact, of that, him, I might have turned him on to the New York Dolls for all I know. Yeah. Yeah, that would be pretty <laughs> impressive. Well, what were your impressions of Malcolm in, in you know knowing him at that oh, time? Oh, really smart guy. Mm-hmm. So you like really him? unusual. Yeah. Smart guy, and I knew he was up to something, you know, he was like, because he was into off-the-wall off things, you know, and I was too, you know, just like, he was always trying to look for the extra edge, you know, a little something different, yeah. and I was always looking for something different, because I never, I never wanted to be one of the masses, I guess, for some reason, I was never that way, mm-hmm. uh, I was always like an outsider, you know, so, uh, yeah, he was, you know, you could tell he was into stuff, you know. And, uh, but I, at that time, I wasn't really doing anything. And then uh, I was getting bored with music. I was, the only things that really excited me were like the uh, the pub rock that was going on in England. And, and some of the things here, like like the Dolls and some of the other, a couple of the other bands. But Iggy was still good. Bowie was great. Roxy music was still good. But basically there was like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, progressive rock. You had Foreigner, whoever liked. Yeah, so you were not a prog guy? Yes. Genesis. I liked prog in the beginning. I loved Yes in the beginning, but yeah. then the, it just became too repetitious. You know, they, I lost, you know, and I, was, I got real pissed off at prog, I think, when I went to see uh, uh, Dr. Feelgood at the Tower. They were opening up for General Giant. I love mm-hmm. General Giant. They I were love prog. General Giant, too. They were all prog yeah. rock. Right. Love General Giant, but uh, you know it was uh, Lee Brillo and, and uh, I forget uh, Wilco Wilco Johnson, the great guitar player, mm-hmm. and they had this blues kind of band. But they were like they were like Jay Giles on meth, 
You know what I mean? That's what it seemed like to me. Because Jay, Jay, Jay Giles was a great band in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And it was like Jay Giles on, on meth, and I was totally into him. And, but the audience kept on booing him. I was, you know, I'm telling these people around me, shut the fuck up, man. This is a great band. You were blowing it, you know? They wanted more crumb horns. If they'd only played the crumb horn. It would have been yeah, right. it, was, it was like, this was like punk rock before punk rock happened. It was 76, mm-hmm. I guess. So there were bands like that that I was really into, you know? And I would go to Third Street Jazz and buy my records, and one day I'd go in there to get the Pink Parker EP, Graham Parker I liked. Mm-hmm. And he had this one EP, it was like four songs on, a, on, on pink vinyl. Uh, and I went in there to get that, and I see the damn single sitting there, and I go, this looks interesting. Mm-hmm. I said, what are these guys, you know, this, these are those punk you know guys i don't think they even call them punk i forget what it was they were calling them but they, i knew there was something about them like from reading enemy and mm-hmm. and melody maker they were just starting to write about these groups it was the the first single to new rose new rose yeah yeah and i took it home and put it on went, <laughs> <laughs> you know after listening to the pink parker i put on an the new rose, and I, and I jumped back. I said, "Whoa!" <laughs> I couldn't believe the excitement I felt yeah. that was coming out of his turn, you know, out of my speakers. I said, "Damn!" Went back down to Third Street the next day, and I asked. It was John DiLiberto, who was uh, who was behind the counter there. He he's been a mainstay on uh, on on uh, on the Penn Station. Uh, even, oh, XPN? Is it XPN? The Penn uh, radio station. Uh, it's not WXPN. Uh, whatever. Yeah, or, yeah, but okay. he used to, And I asked him, you know, in the 45th, and I said, any other bands like this? It's going to say, well, he pointed out a couple other things that might be... So so every week I was going back there buying whatever mm-hmm. came out. And I was like, I remember getting the Anarchy in the UK, and I was like, oh, fuck, God. <laughs> <laughs> This is it. This 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 is it. You know, to me, this is this is like you know, and I could, and I could relate to like what was going on with the dolls because it almost like it was almost the same side. But these guys were even like further out there, you know, because mm-hmm. they were faster and louder, and uh, and the Heartbreakers, you know, were playing. So I went to see the Heartbreakers up in New York, you know, because Thunders was in that, and he was the, the remnant from uh, from the Dolls. And they were fucking great. And then they went over to England, and I was reading about them, and it was just like buying all this stuff. And then, so uh, I would go down to like the the hot club. You know, there was nowhere to see these guys unless you went up to New York. Mm-hmm. And there weren't many places really to see this stuff up in New York. You had the Diplomat Hotel, uh, which is a basement room down, in, 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 and and uh, Gilder Sleeves, which is mainly heavy metal or hard rock. In the village, in in East Village, and of course they're open CBGBs, but you had Max's. Mm-hmm. Max's once in a while could catch some of these bands on the second floor, and uh, so I remember I'm down down at the hot club, and they're you know, he's not doing that. You know, I mean sometimes they do okay, you know, like on the weekends, you know, during. And I asked Ivan, I said, you know, because he's bartending down there, I said, hey, you know. What's what's business like? You know, he said, well, you know, 
And I had known David Carroll, because I used to work for him at Artemis back in the 70s. We had a cl another club. Uh, and I, I said to him, you know, I know it would be good here, because you're not doing anything on Mondays and Tuesdays. Why don't you do this punk rock stuff on mm -hmm. Mondays and Tuesdays? I'm telling you, this is going to happen. It's really going to happen. So I dragged him up to New York to see the Dead Boys mm -hmm. at CBGB's. And what did he think of that? He was sold. Yeah, right. <laughs> he was going nuts. And he's a lot older than me. So like, mm -hmm. he's an older guy, you know, a guy older than me. It's like he just turned 78. So he's like, I think he's 78. He's like 10 years older than me. And you were into your 30s at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I was born in 45. Right. So, uh, so you're like I was 32 in '77. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm already, I'm already there. But I'm bored with what's going on. Yeah. And I was always a person that lived on the edge for some reason. I don't know mm -hmm. whether it's clothing, what you know, music, everything was like right to the edge. Take me right there. <laughs> and I took on Dead Boys, and he he loved it, you know. And he said, "Okay, Mondays and Tuesdays, we're going to do punk rock." Mm -hmm. So the first band, the first act we 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 got were the Sick Fucks, mm -hmm. and uh, were really funny. They were great. They're really funny, because almost like a parody kind of act, you know. Yeah. And uh, and was there a scene in Philadelphia that was responsive to this stuff that early on? I mean, it happened right away. Right. So, right away. So the there first, were people who wanted to see. There were these people kind of there bands. for the first shows, and then it built. You know, the word spread. There yeah. were people waiting. They were like waiting in the wings for something to happen. Yeah, yeah. That's what and it was finally, like. Finally, it's here. Yeah. There were like people that you know, like disgruntled people with the music scene, or or outsiders. You know, for some reason or other, you know, they're outsiders yeah. of their, their cliques, you know, they didn't fit in for mm -hmm. some reason in high school or whatever. That's yeah. what it was, you know? So you started... A lot of artistic people, basically, because that's what you get from, from art. You, people that are into art or like to create art are always looking to go to the edge, it seems, mm -hmm. you know, right. or some kind of edge or whatever. So that's... And... Uh, uh, I remember the the two sisters that that sang background singers for them, uh, uh, Tish and Snooky, mm -hmm. uh, had a store in the village called Manic Panic. Right. And they were the background singers. They would wear this nun's outfit, uh -huh. would, but stripped down so they looked like total sluts. Right. You know, total slut nuns. And they would be the background singers. And immediately you fell in love with them, you know, because... Mm -hmm. <laughs> So we became, you know, I became friends with them, and like so, I, I so I was up in Manic Panic right away, you know, buying, get my hair, you know, like all different colors and shit, because they were the first ones to put out the colors. Mm -hmm. They were smart enough to do that, but we became friends with Hilly, and uh, you know, and gradually we built, you know, like we other bands would find out. So, so the Hot Club was the place, to, only place to play for a punk band in Philly. Mm -hmm. For, for a number of years. And of course, uh, one day, you know, I had to form a band. You know, it was, you just get, it was that, that's what was so beautiful about punk. Because you felt like, hey, let's get up there and do it. It was, <laughs> it was, it was just like, there was uh, the Hardy, Hardy family movies with uh, 
in, in the 30s and 40s with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney mm-hmm. were, you know, you know, let's put on a show kind of thing in yeah. the neighborhood. Yeah. That was the vibe that you got when you went. Because people in the audience, one day they'd be in the audience and the next night they'd be up on stage mm-hmm. or the next yeah. week, you know, they'd say, oh, you got a band together, you know. And that's how I met the people in my in my band were guys that I, I bumped into, you know, just being there. And mm-hmm. say, hey, let's form, yeah, all right, let's do that. And what was your band called? The Autistics. Mm-hmm. Right. And I picked the name, I don't know why I picked the name, because autism back then wasn't as prominent as now. Mm-hmm. And I picked the name because I wanted to be controversial. I was always like that. And our motto was, we rock. And it's because kids are autistic, rock back and forth. So I figured, like, let me, you know. Right. Not being no PC back then, you know. <laughs> no, not in the late 70s. We rock. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's, that was the name of our band, the Autistics. So, and we played, we played, you know, CBs and Maxes and all those places. Did you, you sing know? for the band? I was a singer. Right, right, right. And did you record yeah. anything ever? Uh, just X, two XPN, XPN shows. Right. That was the, uh, we did uh, some live XPN shows. Uh, and that was the only recordings we ever did. And maybe someone recorded us off the board. But the idea back then wasn't, if you didn't form a band to get a, a record deal. That had nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The whole idea of forming a band was to get on stage and perform and just feel like, you know, what you, you know, be a rock and roll star for the night. You know, it's just like you always wanted to do. Right. You know, that's what it was about. It wasn't about like making money. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, just doing something that was fun and exciting. And uh, I don't think anybody thought about recording contracts back then. Not originally, you know. Right, right. But uh, that's what it was all about. It was like a, a great feeling because each week, you know, somebody else from the audience had a new band, you know, or was handing you a cassette tape of like, hey, listen, this is my band. Yeah, yeah. This is my music. It was like, wow. <laughs> what other Philly punk bands were on the scene at the time or beginning to come onto the scene? Well, the first band had to be, uh, had to be Pure Hell. Mm-hmm. Pure Hell existed before there was punk rock. Pure Hell existed... When the New York Dolls existed. You should probably explain kind of who, who they are, what they were all about for they were folks like who don't know that. They were an all-black band, four black kids, who dressed completely wild, like the New York Dolls, when the Dolls were happening. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like... But they, were, they existed when this was all going on. They were the first... No one, you know, even comes close to being the first band. It, Pure Hell was it. Mm-hmm. And Richie Wolf was their manager... Uh, He's a guy later was one of the guys that opened up TLA, TLA. video, mm-hmm. and uh, and they were they were they were wild. They were exciting. I mean, I remember seeing them before punk rock. They were because you know I was into the, the dolls and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So I remember seeing them before punk rock, and like you know, and punk rock came. There they were. They were right there. They were, <laughs> but they were already been played in England. You know, they had already played over in over in London already and places like that because they were friends with the Dolls mm-hmm. uh, from the Heartbreakers because they were friends with, with with Thunders, so they had already gone over to England. So I had read about them, you know, like in the uh, in in sounds or anime or whatever before uh, before we even had another band. 
Uh, I'm trying to think now, like there was the accidentals, there was science, science friction, uh, the warm jets. Um, trying to think, the stick men. Jeez. Um, Stickman seems to come up a lot with people that I've talked to who are around at that time as being a really defining Philly punk band. Uh, did you feel that they were a really was, strong presence? Like every, the funny thing about the Philadelphia bands is like no one sounded like anybody else. Mm -hmm. Everybody had their own unique sound. There was not one band that sounded like another Philly band. They're all totally unique. Right. Um, Crash Course in Science, Head Cheese, who later became Book of Love. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. They were a big new wave band, okay. but they were PCA oh, wait, what, students, and he never thought they would ever make anything of themselves. I swear to God, right. it was like one of those bands he felt sorry for. But they were cute girls, and uh, it was okay. Not as, I mean, they weren't the Slits because the mm -hmm. Slits were one of my favorite. No, they weren't great, as good yeah. as them, but they were unique enough, you know. But uh, there were so many bands. I, I, I'd have to sit down and think about it, but. Uh, um, but then you had like the Robert Hazard, you had that kind of stuff, like the New Wave stuff, Quincy, who were bands that could play at Dobbs, but, you know, the punk rock, see, Dobbs wouldn't hire any of the punk rock bands. The, well, the autistics they, were the only ones, because have, I knew John Travis there, and mm -hmm. he hated punk. Okay. But yeah. because my friend Ivan, who was working at Dobbs and the Hot Club, he was working at the bartender, you know. Mm -hmm. And John Travis, I knew from way before, you know, the punk scene, you know, the, the Dobbs, because I, I, I knew all those people from South Street. He let us play there one night, and it was, I, I, you know, I never went back to do it again, because we had to do three sets. Right. Three 45-minute sets. We didn't even do one 45-minute yeah, set. Have, you don't have 45 minutes worth of material. We had to surely. do every song that we even played in rehearsal. Yeah, that, what punk band would have had that, that much material? Covers, I'm talking about. We did yeah, yeah. tons of... But what we did, what was funny, though, was in between sets uh, at Stars at 2nd and Bainbridge, Stephen Stars first club, the Dam were playing. Mm -hmm. Same night as we were playing. You're like, That's going to hurt. And I was really pissed off that that happened. But we we made it so we could go over there and made it... We found out when they were going on, so we mm -hmm. made it sure that our intermission was at that right, time. That, that's we went over there. Yeah. And you know, talk to him afterwards. Rat Scabies came back for our third set and played with us. Oh, that's amazing! That's fantastic. that's fantastic. But I remember Stephen Starr. I remember kicked me out of the place uh, a couple of times. One time, saw Eddie and Hot Rods and we were smoking a joint in the balcony. Threw me out. And another time, the Cramps were playing there, and I was—I had already been friends with the Cramps from New York. And uh, and he and he, Lux went on to like destroy part of the stage. You know how he would would get carried away and mm -hmm. everything like that. And he was smashing the stage up and everything. And Stephen and me and I were standing in the back laughing. And he thought we were the ones that told him because he saw us talking to him before. Uh, yeah, the, he thought we were the, the ones the that told him to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so we got thrown. I was never allowed back in there. But luckily, I'd seen the dictators a couple times there already, so like, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And then he stopped doing that, and he opened up Ripley's. <laughs> it was a funny scene back then. The Cramps were one of the greatest live bands ever. They were funny back then.
and Devo. Everybody played the Hot Club. The Runaways, Devo, Elvis Costello. Mm-hmm. I mean, The Cure played there, Magazine. Wow. I mean, Iggy. Our last gig is the Autistics opened up for Iggy. That's we a went great out last with, gig. Yeah. And what was great about it was like, the Dead Boys brought down half the New York scene with them because Iggy was playing at, at the Hot Club and they knew it would be more fun to be in Philly because they wouldn't have to deal with all the other assholes up in New York. <laughs> right. So he brought his crew and a bunch of other musicians all came down to see Iggy here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a totally wild night. I got the totally smashed. I got kidnapped by these two girls from Boston, these two sisters, with a bottle. They... they, they uh, they shoved peppermint schnapps down my throat, uh-huh. got me totally drunk. I woke up in Atlantic City, somewhere in Atlantic City, and they were going, they had to go somewhere, and they, they just dropped me off at the they just at this motel. City, they yeah. said, you know, we're leaving. For some reason, they were staying in Atlantic City, and they were going back to Boston. I don't know what it was, whatever, but here I was. Just enough money in my pocket for a bus fare back to Philadelphia from Alex. <laughs> it must have been a fun night. I'm sure you can't remember it, but... Uh, but I loved the night, though. I had a ha- yeah. hangover, a bad hangover. I never drank pepper schnapps again because of the hangover I got. Right. But I cannot love that night. You know, it was like total <laughs> rock and roll. Iggy, the dead boy, everybody around there, you know, all the, all the New York guys down there. Iggy playing a fucking amazing set. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we did our last gig, you know. You can't, you can't beat that. Well, now, like, like you know, like, couldn't ask for a better farewell, I'll tell you. Because I, I had started DJing there a while before that. Now, the, the way the whole DJ thing started, when we used to go up to New York back then, uh, uh, Max's and... Uh, uh, and uh, CBGB's had jukeboxes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy from Max's had this little contraption that could take out the center part out of an import single, 45. Because back in those days, they they didn't have the big 45, English English 45s. Always had so they the, had the little the hole, tiny right? hole. Right. right, we had the big hole. Right. They didn't have the adapter. He had this little yeah. contraption that yeah. would that take that out and put it in the jukebox. Yeah. And the jukebox at the hot club, we didn't have that, you know, so it was all domestic stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was really tired of hearing the same old shit every night, Yeah, you know, because you get these people who play the same song every night, you know, you get that a lot, you know. And I was just tired of being under under someone else's, like, you know, taste, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I talked David into, like, in a coat room, I set up, a, a, uh, he brought down a turntable from upstairs. And it was just one turntable in the coat check. <laughs> the turntable in the coat check? And I was doing the same yeah. thing I was doing back in 66. Yeah. I was putting my finger on top of the turntable, you know, on top of the record, and let it spin. But what was harder, was more difficult, was like, I didn't, you know, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have two of them, so I'd have to quickly grab the next record and, and put it on there and like, do that. So this went on for a while. Then the, the sound company started carrying these uh, DJ setups where they have two turntables with direct drive. Mm-hmm. They would just pl- plug in an amp. And then, uh, voila, I finally was at a yeah. real DJ system. So we started doing, you know, I started playing music in between 
in between acts every night except for the nights I was you know with the you know playing in the band in my band mm -hmm. so that's what it was and I was doing all the flyers and I was uh, David was booking the bands me and David you know I'd be his advisor he he would make the deals and I would tell him you know whether this is you know whether the band was good enough or whatever because I was such a vinyl junkie and I would be at all the record stores I know who's who was selling records who wasn't and plus reaction to people you know requests and everything like that so so we worked good as a team with that and uh and it worked well for a while and uh oh it was an amazing scene uh back then so the city of philadelphia how accepting was the city say lni or police or authorities to the presence of a club that was bringing okay. in weirdos we paid the cops Mm -hmm. That's how it worked. Somehow I'm not surprised. Back to hear in this, those but... days, the cops were in charge. Mm -hmm. The LNI wasn't in charge of the cops. Right. You paid off the cops. And you're paying them no in money. No one bothered you. Purely money, or are they being paid money. in other? Okay, yeah, money. Right. Paid. I don't know how many because I didn't. That was David's thing. Yeah, yeah. But that that went on in the club scene all the way through uh, Kennel Club days mm -hmm. until uh, liquor control board started taking over. That's when it changed. I think that didn't happen until, uh, I think, in the uh, sometime in the late 80s. I don't think it changed. And it was uh, The cops were in charge, so you paid the cops, that's all. Mm -hmm. I mean, they never, no one got carded. Right. Oh, so this is a free... Oh, like, no. Right. 15, 16, doesn't care. We didn't care how old you were. You, If you want, if you paid to come in, you got in. That's all there was mm -hmm. to it. Um, I remember Jody Head, who's who's a who's she she lives in New York now. She was a, I think she her, she does guitar straps now. But she was she became a famous jeweler up in New York, for uh, costume jewelry and 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 uh, boutique jewelry and stuff. She was 15 years old. Used to come in 15, 16 years old. And her father, who I knew, me and David knew from the Artemis days, because he used to hang out at Artemis, David's former club. We're hiding in the bush, bushes, watching from across the street. And me and Dave would say, Look, there he is again. He's watching Jody. There's Mr. Kaufman. I see him out there. He's behind that bush over there. It was funny. The bush has feet. But you know, there was no carding. Same thing with the Eastside Club. The Eastside Club, we didn't card anybody. And it was the After Hours Club. So you were supposed to have a membership. We sold dollar memberships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a keep dollar a membership. Out. So are the, but he didn't pay. But the funny thing was, he didn't pay them off for some reason because we shut at three thirty. Kennel Club would go on till six in the morning. Maybe he was. No, I don't think he was paying them anything. Because uh, we just got lucky with that. We never got. Because uh, I know Neil from Wide I think he told me he was like fifteen or fourteen or fifteen years old when he used to come first. First attend the shows at the East Side. He might have even been 13. I don't know. <laughs> so, so how long did Hot Club last? Hot Club lasted from uh, the end of 77, the f October 77, till, the, uh, till June of 1980. Mm -hmm. And what was the cause of its demise? Dave uh, had personal problems at the time. Uh, with money and he just didn't handle his money well mm -hmm. I don't want to get into it nothing to do with drugs 
But, uh, and I guess, I don't know. And it kind of, you know, that's what it was. It was, uh, his heart was right there and his brain was right there. It just, you know, something was holding him back and that, that's what it was. It's a shame because that, that's basically what it was. Uh, and then there was no scene for a while, you know, that summer. I mean, uh, so summer of you had the barbecue born. I mean, that was the first. It was on Eleventh and uh, Locust. And it was this bar called the Barbecue Barn. And I remember they they had this little loft space above the bar that the bands played on. It was like, and I remember there was a band there that used to do covers of the Rosillos. Mm-hmm. But it was mostly younger bands who were just starting. Uh, and then what happened was I left. Uh, the Stray Cats well Stray Cats called me and said I went to England so how did, how did this relationship begin between you and the Stray Cats oh the Stray Cats okay well the guy that discovered the Stray Cats was this guy Eddie Wambach Eddie Von Bach who was this who was an incredible singer one of the best singers I ever met in my life he never got a break never never was lucky the whole music industry, in my whole time in it, uh, I don't care how talented you are, how good you are, whatever, it's all a matter of luck. Mm-hmm. Being at the right place at the right time and the right person hearing something at the right time. You know, that's all it is. Just luck. You know, I mean, after a while, sometimes, it, you know, talent just rises above. But a lot of times, it's just pure luck. Mm-hmm. That's all it is, you know. He never got that lucky break, but he... He was living in New York, trying to, you know, doing band, getting in bands. And he went to Max's one night and saw the Blood of Sparrows. He calls me up the next day and he says, Oh man, you've got to see these guys. Young kids, he said, they're amazing, blah, blah, blah. You've got you gotta, you gotta, you gotta to book these bands in Philly. I've got the number for you. Give this, this guy a call. And that's it. So I gave Brian a call. Man. Booked them down, down, down there, and it was uh, it was mostly young guys. Brian, uh, Brian and Bob were both, I think, twenty year old. I think they were twenty or nineteen, nineteen or twenty. I guess Bob, the bass player, Bob Beecher. Brian sits with his own guitar. His sixteen year old brother Gary was on drums, and his other. Uh, 18 or 19 year old guy, uh, Ken Canale was on keyboards and vocals. And they were completely unusual, you know, totally different. I think the closest group I could, I could possibly say would be Magazine, mm-hmm. early Magazine. But they're nothing like that. But they were different and the, they were very unique and they had this amazing appeal on stage, you know. The two brothers were really good looking. They they had big pompadours, right? And they were skinny little guys, you know, wearing like a mixture of 50s and punk clothes, both. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Bob Beecher, the bass player, he had one of those uh, Dan Electro basses where it's a guitar and bass on the same thing. Mm-hmm. Or okay. it's, yeah. a, it's a double neck thing. Yeah. yeah. He had one of those. And Ken, Ken was the this, the vocalist, and he had his real like gothic deep voice, you know. 
and they had these weird songs, you know, they were really off the wall. You know, like the lyrics and everything, and you know, and his time changes. It was like this, this; they were really different. And the guitarist was just mind-boggling. I mean, I'd been in the music business, you know, from from the late '60s, and saw every band in the '60s. You know, whoever, you know, anybody who played in Philadelphia, I, I'd seen because Electric Factory put on a show or whatever, or I got to, whatever. I'd seen just about everybody. And I knew right away that, you know, like my friend Eddie said, this guy's unique and this band is definitely unique. And David caught on right away, too. Yeah, I only had to see him once. Mm -hmm. Right away, he said, he said let me manage yeah. you. Because <laughs> he's, you know, it's like, it was like Uncle Scrooge with the dollar signs <laughs> right. twirling yeah. around his eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was like. It was like all of a sudden, like, whoa, these guys are amazing. And, uh, because we had seen everybody else, all the ones who were coming through, the English bands and the ones that weren't, you know, the domestic bands. And so immediately, uh, so they were playing there like at least once or twice a month. Uh, and Brian on, on, on the other scene, now the Bloodless Pharaohs couldn't play Dobbs. Right? Because they were a punk band? Because, yeah, they yeah. were just too weird. Yeah, too weird. Too weird. Weird for but he took his rockabilly band down there because that's what he was doing in New York to make money. Because how many places in New York can you play? There, were, there weren't that many places to, to really play, even in New York, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's going on Long Island with the rockabilly trio. It was it was him and his brother, brother on drums, and Bob Beecher on, on bass, and they were playing rockabilly, you know, to make extra money. They would do like four sets a night, you know, just like the Dobbs shit, mm -hmm. and that's who he was making his money. So also at this time, uh, this other friend of mine, who I knew from the clothing business, that I first met in London in 1970, this guy Tony Bidgood, uh, he had moved to Philly, he met a girl from Philly, decided to come to the United States, so he married her, came to Philly, uh, opened up a clothing store on 4th Street called Grumbles. Mm -hmm. And now this guy... Is the guy that made all the clothes for Slade? Yeah, wow. He was he was uh, he made leather clothing and stuff like that. And he was phenomenal, you know. Mm -hmm. He made all the clothing for Slade and stuff like that. And I met him in uh, this boot place in uh, in South London because he was, this guy was from South London and uh, he was friends with the guy that. Uh, there was the assistant in the boot boot place called Costas, and they made all the platform boots. Mm -hmm. And I was friends with this guy Costa. I'd start I had started doing business over the telephone and through the mail of doing custom made boots and stuff. So that's where I met Tony there, and he came came to Philly, and we were friends and everything. And he he's the one who first started the whole patchwork uh, denim craze. Mm -hmm. He originated that back then so eventually his clothing business went out of business <laughs> and he was bartending at Dobbs just like my friend Ivan who was also bartending uh, not Dobbs at the hot club who's also Ivan I knew from the clothing business too he also had clothing stores back so he so it was like 
a way it's either you're in the bar business or the music business or the clothing business <laughs> yeah but uh so he was working there too and he became friends with uh with brian because brian was with a clothes horse so somehow they got talking you know about clothing and stuff like that and uh that's how tony became friends with him so what happened was uh david's life was kind of getting out out of you know wasn't working out you know because his finances weren't working out he was losing the club and uh so he kind of lost grip of the bloodless pharaohs it was hard getting a record deal back then uh it wasn't very easy if you were different and uh so tony's going back to england he's tired he had enough so he talked to setzer into uh, into bringing a rockabilly thing over to England because there's still a circuit for rockabilly people over in England. Uh, there's a whole bunch of clubs, and uh, you could make some money. So you know, come over for 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 a month or two and make some money, and you know, come back here. You know, that's what. So they went over to England. That was the whole plan. Was like to play, you know, some rockabilly gigs and then come back. To go back to New York, and he was going to go back to school to be a draftsman. Right. Yeah, and, didn't, didn't quite go that way. And all of a sudden, I get a call in July. Uh, it was near the 4th of July, I think. And uh, it was Tony and Brian saying, you got to come over. you got to come over here. Because uh, all these record labels are chasing us, and we don't know what to do. And I knew the, clo the, the business real well from working for Electric Factory and all the other shit and everything. So uh, the next, the next, uh, the next morning, I took a train up to New York, hopped my first flight out of out of uh, New York, which you can't do anymore. You can't decide you want to go somewhere and just <laughs> no, catch yeah. a flight. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's what I did, and. Um, Plopped myself in London, and uh, all of a sudden they're on the cover of NME. They'd only done like six, seven gigs. Mm -hmm. That's all. That's all and all like. of a sudden they became the toast of the town. Uh -huh. And uh, oh, I forgot to mention that they had, they had two different members. <laughs> I guess that helps. What happened was Brian got into a fight with his brother mm -hmm. at uh, at. Uh, my father's place in Long, Long, Long Island, New York. And Gary started throwing his symbols at him, like, you know, like a, like trying to cut off his head or something. <laughs> and Bob Beecher was, had become an alcoholic and decided he was going into a rehab. So at the gig, at that, at that gig, it was uh, two of, of Gary's friends, uh, Brian's brother's friends, was, uh, was Leon, Leon Drucker, and Jim McDonald, who were friends of his bro uh, of of Gary's, who were playing in a uh, a Steely Dan cover band. That's what they were doing. Uh -huh. <laughs> Leon's father was the first first clarinet in New York Philharmonic, and his mother was the first clarinet in the uh, Long Island Symphony, or the first. No, she was first uh, violinist. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, last two years ago, Leon Drucker uh, just retired from 
uh, neurophilharmonic. He was so wor world known that they had two big articles about him, big p stories about him on the front cover of New York Times. Uh, That's how well known yeah. this guy was. He was like supposedly one of the greatest clarinet classical clarinets in the world, mm -hmm. apparently. So anyway, he asked, so Brian says, hey, I got this opportunity to go to England. You know, do you want to go over there and do this rockabilly thing? And the guys go, sure, we'll do that. You know, they're 18 years old. Yeah. What the yeah, why fuck not? do they yeah. care? Yeah. You know, go to London? Sure, let's go. <laughs> so they rehearsed for two weeks and go to London. And that's and that's how they became the Stray Cats. So it was like, and then one guy went to a rehab and the other, you know, it's like the old story. And, oh, and the fourth member was my friend Eddie Von Bach, mm -hmm. who decided not to go to England. Yeah, bad choice. <laughs> lost, lost opportunity. But so then I got the call, and so I went over there, and that's uh, that's how I got the got over to England with that, and uh, got totally involved in the music scene there because they were like everybody's favorite. Mm -hmm. Back then, you know, like the Rolling Stones came the same, you know, like stuff like that. And Keith Richards sent his sent his limo to pick up Brian for a jam session, you know, shit like that was going on. And all these people, you know, like everybody wanted to know, you know, be friends with Stray Cats. I mean, the first night I was there, uh, we went to this party in North London. It was at Paul Cook's house. Mm -hmm. And I see Susie the Banshee with, with, uh, with, with um, Budgie and I had a crush on Susie. From, I'm but sure a lot of people what, The first night I'm there, and there she's standing two feet away from me. Because right. <laughs> I, I didn't say nothing, but, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so you stayed but all these people England. were there, you know, all these famous guys. Yeah. I recognize half the people in the joint, you know, from bands, you know. Yeah. like. So, like, it was like, I was plopped right in the middle, middle of the scene. It was great. How long did that wind up lasting, your relationship with them and, and being over in, in Britain doing that? I, I stayed there until April. I went until April. I had a falling out. Well, with the Tony, he sort of, he was doing too much coke. And he was kind of fucking up things. Uh, we had uh, decided, Brian wanted to go home for a couple of weeks. So this was uh, in January of... Uh, 81 mm -hmm. and uh, so I just I said to Tony this is what we're going to do because they didn't I had I had I was the one that uh, did the contract with Arista uh, and I got a great contract but what I did was I made them sign the band without having uh, Canada or the United States mm -hmm. so they were signed to Arista around the world except for Canada and the United States because I, I wanted to do what George Clinton did. I wanted to get another, I wanted to have two labels working for me instead of one. Right, right. I thought that was one of the most amazing things that George Clinton did. He formed like three or four different offshoots of, of you know, his band. He had the Mothership connect, Connection and he had... His Parliament. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. And it was all so he could get record for different labels and have that many labels different work mm -hmm. for him at the same time. Because they, they'd have to promote you even if you're, you know... They'd have to, you know, promote you all the time because if another album came out, they would, they wouldn't promote what stuff was on your label at the same time. So this constant flow of promotion. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a great idea because Arista in the United States I didn't like because uh, 
Clive Davis was running it, and and he wasn't for, he didn't have a good track record with rock and roll. He was good with R and B and stuff like that, and, and for, but all he had was Patti Smith, The Grateful Dead, mm-hmm. nothing else. So I figured like, let's st- stay away from Marista in the states, and uh, so we had a great deal, and I, I figured like, let's put a show in New York City and get all the labels to come. Mm-hmm. This is this is what I told Tony. This is what we're going to do, you know. So they'd all bid against each other to kind of raise. So things. yeah, so we get another. Yeah. So I go, I go, I come back to Philly. Uh, Brian goes to New York. Uh, Mila get on the phone, and Bond, and Bonds had opened. We're starting to do shows back then. Uh, had had been open, right? Oh yeah. Bonds was open, and the guy, I think was, he used to work at Haraz or something, somebody I knew was involved in Bonds. So I called him up and said, hey, for one night only, the Stray Cats, mm-hmm. the U.S., blah, 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 got him, I, got, I think I got a, a big fee. We got good money, I know that. And it was like a one-time thing, exclusive to Bond, you know, blah, 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 you know. Right. They loved all that shit. It was like, the place is packed. It was like, did you ever see, the, I guess, no, you wouldn't know. Because I saw the Clash there. They played there. Mm-hmm. Uh, really big place. Uh, and everybody was there. Everybody was like, the place was packed. And Tony never shows up. Uh, what? Because of his drug issues? It, it was, he never showed up because he was too, you know, he was too busy with his girlfriend and cocaine or whatever and living the high life in london yeah and it fucked up the whole thing because what happened was the first album never came out in the united states it only came out everywhere but united states and Canada. Yeah. because by the time tony comes over was after you know was in in the summertime and then he signs a deal with emi and it was, by that time the stray cats were recording their second album already and I had left because, because when I came back, uh, he was trying to get me to be less. He was worried about me taking over the band, mm-hmm. which wasn't never my intention. But I think it was the coke was making him paranoid, and right. maybe his girlfriend. So he was kind of shoving me in a, in, in the back room for some things, you know, and keep me unaware of some, you know. So I decided, like the hell with this. After the second tour of the UK, I decided to leave, and I came back to Philly. And uh, and, and the second day I got in town, I bumped into Bill Hoskins, who I knew from my uh, high school days, uh, from hanging in Oakbrook Park in West Philly. He was from Chatsford. He said he is just opening up a club that used to be a disco, and he was changing it over to a live venue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, really? You got any DJs? He said, no. I said, well, you know, I'm a DJ, blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay, you, you can work for me. He said, who you got booking the bands? And he says, well, I got Steve, ben- Steve Benson and uh, Lee, Lee Stallman, who, uh, who book Alexander's in New Jersey. And they're going to do it. And I said to him, well, why? You want to compete with? The Bijou and and Ripley's, 
Because that would be your competition. What for, were those places like? Uh, they were like um, Electric Factory on the Bijou. Mm-hmm. And Ripley's was uh, Stephen Starr's place. Okay. And they were sort of like uh, like Electric Factory is now. Like whatever kind of, every kind of genre of music played there, mm-hmm. depending on what was available for the date. Right. So it was there was like there was no identity. It wasn't like this was a uh, a new wave punk club or this you know like the hot club was a was a punk new wave whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was all we had there. You know nothing else. So I said, well, you know, maybe you should think about doing a, a punk new wave club because I got a lot of connections and I could book bands and you know blah 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 and you wouldn't have any competition. Mm-hmm. You know because Ripley's wasn't booking it and and either it was. Uh, the showbook, because they were they were clueless about that music. Mm-hmm. So I finally talked them into it, and then I became the DJ and a booking agent for it, and that's how the Eastside Club D-side started. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the first, and we opened up on May, I think it was May 15th or something like that, and uh, I can't remember the name of the band. It was a hardcore band from Seattle, Washington, that I know uh, the drummer... I think maybe went on to Black Flag or something, or maybe went on to some other. The drummer was real well known. He played with a lot of big, lot of the big bands. I can't remember the name of the band. They were the opening band. It was like a hardcore band from. And that's how it started, you know. And then uh, we got, we were doing like live music. Uh, trying to do it seven nights a week. Mm-hmm. At first, it was seven nights a week. And then it got to be a little less, and then it was like, you know, five nights a week, and then it became four nights a week at the end. But uh, we had everybody playing there, you know. Were you seeing... The Clash even rehearsed there when they played at the... uh, They played at the uh, the 1921 rink in West Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania. Their tour manager was somebody I knew from the Electric Factory days, Mm -hmm. who was a tour manager. And... And somehow got my name from somebody, called me up and said, hey, uh, I got this band playing over at the uh, the rink and we need a rehearsal. Do you think you could let The Clash come in and mm-hmm. rehearse for one afternoon? I think that's probably possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to say no to that one. <laughs> Were you seeing any kind of a, a the sea change between punk in its earliest forms and then the hardcore punk that kind of came along in oh, the 80s a huge change yeah it was well uh what happened was uh you had the hard when hardcore punk started um what happened was uh, politics were becoming a very heavy issue and that's that's what i think hardcore punk goes along with politics and mm-hmm. and so and uh social values and things like that. And they were uh, very politically active in that sense. Whereas like the other part of the punk scene was, was, but it wasn't, the politics weren't the main issue or I think with hardcore punk, politics and soci- uh, social values were more of an issue than the music was. Mm-hmm. But here was an outlet for it, so, uh, and it went along, you know, plus it was like a DIY, DIY so you, you didn't have to deal with the big corporations, which, you know, or, or big business and stuff like that. Everything mm-hmm. was done, you know, like uh, you did it yourself. How did you feel about that ethos? I thought in, it was the, the greatest. I thought it was great because 
what I loved about it was the fact that, like, he was something for kids uh, that were underage or whatever, maybe the ones that couldn't, who didn't dare to come in or couldn't stay out late, mm-hmm. like, to those shows. Like, because, like, you know, even even though you could get in no matter what age you were, the, the East Side Club went on, was open till 3.30. You know, like, the headliner might not have been on till 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. If so, young kid, kids, you, so, you know, they can't yeah. do that. Yeah. They can't do any of this stuff. Yeah. So... It was a, it was a great thing because it reminded me when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, uh, all the shows were you know like all ages whatever. But you used to have record hops where you would go to on uh, on the weekends, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, you know, and they would have like you know acts come in and do like a, you know a lip sync to whatever. But that was like as close as you could get back then. But they were all for like kids, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was an outlet, you know, for for kids. And that kind of like when the Electric Factory closed, that kind of ended. Because Electric Factory, you would have two shows. They had a seven o'clock show, which was for kids under you know under sixteen, mm-hmm. would could come. So back in those days, you could see all those you know, and and the, and the spectrum, you could see those shows. But what happened was like uh, you know, bands started playing in bars. Bars became the, the new venues. Mm-hmm. So uh, when the all ages thing started, because uh, back in the, the punk early punks did, all the venues were bars. There was there, there wasn't anything in New York or anywhere else I know of that wasn't a bar. Mm-hmm. You know, so you had to be a you know age where they'd be paying somebody or whatever. New York, you couldn't get. I don't think you could get away with the, yeah, that false ID. I don't. I think they. They cracked down on that, mm-hmm. unless the mafia owned it, right. and that then you, you could because uh, a lot of clubs were owned by the mafia in, in, in New York. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was a great it was a great thing. Uh, but uh, they didn't quite see me in the beginning as like being part of them. Was it because you were because older I was working a... for a club, right? Yeah. So even though we were independent, we weren't part of any big production. You know, it was just us, and that was it. Uh, they didn't. They got offended sometimes, and and like, uh, and the thing was like, when I, when I would talk to uh, booking agents, I would tell them like, hey, if they're going to do the all ages shows, I can't let them play for me because it's it doesn't make sense because it's just going to cut into their audience or my audience or whatever. So I always try to avoid that. But some acts. You know, it's, it was the agents. You know, that said, "No, we got to make this kind of money." They wouldn't play for for uh, for BYO or something like that because they wanted more money, mm-hmm. and it's especially with the English acts. So I remember one time getting a big big stink with uh, a couple of English bands. Cause uh, do you remember what bands? They were they were from an you know, agent, and they the agent needed a certain amount of money. But they, BYO couldn't afford it, whatever. Is it anti And so they, so what happened was they got, they were so punks during the daytime, and the punks said, you know, like the young hardcore punks said, why aren't you playing our show? You're playing, the, instead of playing for the corporation show, blah, blah, blah. So I got all this big stick. I said, look, talk to your fucking agent. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you play the other shows. If that's what you want to do, then do that. But, you know, it's a matter of, you know, like your agent wanted money. That's all. So, there was a little problem, there was a little stickiness for about a year, 
But then they finally all realized that that we were all working for the same cause, you know, the music and, and everything. And uh, that animosity, you know, left. I mean, just for a little while, I used to get some, I was getting some bad press, but I'm friends with their, all those people anyway, even afterwards. In fact, you know, like Lenny from Crunch, you know, hired me as a DJ quite a few times, for a lot of times for his shows. And Chuck Meehan was always at their shows. And, and, uh, and those, without those guys, you know, I, I think that was, you know, like, they were a big part of the music scene and probably get the least amount of credit. Mm -hmm. But they weren't in it for the money. They were in it for the scene. Right, right, yeah. And, you know, Lenny spent a lot of time and... And, and, and Chuck Meehan, like I said to you on the phone about him doing Abe's Steakhouse and mm -hmm. finding that thing. What a yeah. brilliant maneuver. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. It's that aspect. It's like being part of being like, I think he was, he was in a band for a little while. I think he was a bass player in a band. He was in Wide Eye for a bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like, that's what I mean. Like, it's all being part of like, part of, you know, the scene. You like, you find the venue, you make the venue, you make the band, you make your posters. Yeah. Because that's what I did. You know, I did uh, all the all the I'd say ninety percent of the posters for the uh, for the hot club I I did, and the first year I did for uh, for the Esau club, and then I then uh, what do you call it? Matt Morello did them from Executive Slacks. He he started doing the posters for me, but uh, that was it. You made your own posters. You you hung them up yourself. You did everything was yourself. You know. Yeah, yeah. And the no, ethos has stuck around. There was no big production yeah. or anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, but those guys, you know, even had less to work with, you know, but, uh, but they managed to do it. They had to find their own places and stuff. And it's great. I went to a lot of, a lot of all ages shows because hmm. I wanted to see the bands too, because I knew they weren't going to play for me, right. you know, so it was, uh, you know, that was, that was extremely important part of the scene and, uh. It's a shame it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, it does. Oh, it does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a huge uh, hardcore scene, but in the no, no, no. Core. I'm talking about the uh, DIY aspect. Oh no, I would say that that is absolutely there as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, in even in just Philadelphia, there are kids, young kids, doing shows in whatever space they is can Maxim get. Is Maxim Rock and Roll still publishing? It's still around. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know if it has. Now, there's another the, important you know, aspect. What was great about that magazine. It's a local scene they had for everybody. Yeah, there's the scene report that yeah. people would submit. Yeah. Which was great because that way you could read up about bands in other cities. Yeah, yeah. I used to write those things for them, for Philly sometimes. And, and yeah, that's oh, yeah. still around. I mean, Tim Johannes. I didn't know Ronald Thatcher used to write for him. I don't know what his real name is. I forget. But I was talking to Lenny and he, and he had talked to, talked to him. He was the guy that wrote the, uh, the Philly scene for Maximum Rock and Roll. Mm -hmm. Ronald Thatcher. Yeah, because it took Ronald Reagan, Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a frightful combination. Yeah, no, that that is absolutely still happening. Because uh, I remember he used to at the beginning he used to write bad things about me, mm. and then he realized, you know, like then then that all changed, you know. <clears throat> Not the enemy. Uh, all right, so I got to start to wrap it up. So I'll give you uh, the last question, which is: in this project, it's been dealing with punk, and I've interviewed at the youngest end of the spectrum, twenty-year-old man, uh, and then at the oldest end of the spectrum is you so far at 68. So here we have a huge, you know, 48-year age difference. But the subject matter is the same. This this young kid 
lives a punk lifestyle, you know, part it's of rock it. Rock I never way. grew up. That's my problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> at can does it make sense to you that this thing that began so long ago that you saw born, you know, punk, would still affect and touch and, and inspire people even now in 2013 and then ultimately beyond? I wish it affected people more. I'm not surprised because, like I said, when I first got that damn single and put New Rose on, and, you know, the, what's it, a minute, 48 seconds, something like that? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's less. Than, I think it's less than two minutes. Yeah. You know, here I'm... I'm a guy that was listening to like you know all, that listen to all kinds of music forever you know like but you know coming from seeing the greatest bands whatever greatest musicians whatever and then throwing on this two minute song that was like a blur yeah and I go wow it was like you know it was like it was like you know the light bulb mm-hmm. yeah. you know lit up above my head like in like uh in the cartoons. Gyro Goose, you know, like, I don't know if you ever read, read Walt Disney comics, but he was like this inventor, and he used to have this little, little, uh, little friend of his, it was this little light bulb, and when he got an idea, it would light up. <laughs> That's what it was, above my head, whoa! And then, you know, of course, you know, like, here in Anarchy, and then The Clash, you know, that was probably the most anticipated album of my lifetime, mm-hmm. was the first Clash album. Yeah. More so than any other, most anticipated. That and the Susie and the Banshees, I guess, because Susie, because she waited so long before it finally came out. But the Clash was like, you know, and then seeing the Clash, we went down to Washington, D.C., because they opened up the tour in D.C. And uh, we drove in a blizzard, uh, a bunch of us, the whole autistics crew. Mm -hmm. We all went down there. And we threw our autistic badges on the stage. <laughs> but, and we saw them, it was like, wow. I mean, Joe Strummer, when you look at Joe Strummer, see those pictures of him back in those days, you know, he's a left handed guitarist, first of all. Mm-hmm. And he's roaming around the stage. It looks like one of those silent films that, are, that sped up too quick. Uh-huh, yeah. You know what I mean? Where they sped up the motion. Yeah. That's what Joe Strummer looks like, but he's actually, that's in real motion, in mm-hmm. real time. This guy's on the stage. It's like he snorted 10 lines of meth, <laughs> and he's running around the stage, singing and spitting out, you know, spitting out in the microphone. Yeah. And the words, and like, you know, uh, career opportunities, and hate war, and like, uh, all these songs, yeah, and like, amazing. I mean, the politics and everything has made so much sense. White Smith and Hammerson, and I mean, like, wow. I mean, here it was, you know, like, what came to me from the 60s, because I grew up in, you know, in the original protest era, you know, uh, with, with the 60s, you know, with the Vietnam and everything. I was down in, I was in the Pentagon when they had a huge protest at the Pentagon. There's a famous picture of this girl putting a, a daffodil. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was standing the, five the feet away from her. Wow. And then all of a sudden, the doors opened, and the U.S. Marshals came out in a riot gear and her shields. Mm-hmm. I hopped over the wall and out of there. Uh-huh. I said, I, you know, I'm a political <laughs> activist, but I ain't getting beat up for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> but like here, you know, in England, that, that was being revived, you know, the whole thing, the whole political aspects. And I love that, you know, because that's what's, that's what's really missing for society today 
is 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 the protest. You know, like I don't know why people take all the crap. You know, the politicians are worse than ever now. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, ridiculous. You know, 1984 was just, you know, he had the wrong year. Yeah. <laughs> 2014, that's Big Brother. You know, and the people are just sucked into all that, you know, with the cell phones and everything else. Now the government can track you wherever you're going with the computers, everything. Mm -hmm. They know exactly what you're doing all the time, whenever. Yeah, if they want... You're dead. You're dead in the water. Mm -hmm. They can find out whatever they want to know. They can they can see what you jerk off to, whatever. Right. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. You know how uh, and you know with all the videos and all the streets and everything. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like that. Cameras. It's like that TV show, Person of Interest, mm -hmm. which is based on uh, on all, all the video cameras and everything all over the cities and yeah, stuff the like CCTV. that. Yeah, CCTV. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Quiet, Dino. <laughs> Dino wants to get his voice in here too. But uh, I, I, you know, that's what I like to know. How big of a scene is there now of music? Because I kind of like, I, I, I don't see, I don't see a scene. I remember my last days at Bar Noir. Uh, there seemed to be an influx of really good music in like. Like around 2006, 2007, mm -hmm. there was like all of a sudden there's a lot of good new bands. And I started playing all that new music, but I couldn't draw a crowd there. Like like what they draw to like Making Time or, mm -hmm. uh, or, or that other one that, that's really good that does alternative music. You know, there's once a monthly show. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of those different DJs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I try to get that on a, on a nightly basis or weekly basis. I couldn't get... I couldn't. I couldn't get the people interested. They just didn't care. I don't know. I was like really disappointed. I, I, there is definitely a significant live music DIY ethos scene coming out of punk and hardcore, and then other other things. But you know, retaining the politics, uh, retaining the desire to find spaces and perform in those spaces, not necessarily for profit. Um, and that, that ethos has, has remained really consistent from, you know, say, late 70s or early 80s to the present, where new kids are kind of turned on to these ideas and say, I want to do a band, and then use the technology that's available at the time to you know, disseminate the ideas, they get, let people know about it. Like there are so folks, it's very underground. Yeah, yeah, there are folks who are doing shows like in people's houses, say, um, and they can't announce where the house is, where they're going to do the show, because they don't want Ellen to shut it down. So they can Oh, yeah, use, because... Uh, yeah, because they're not, they don't have permits. They're just like, a, you know, young people who have rented a house and they want bands to play. Yeah, it must be harder now to get away with it. Back then, you could get away without the permits yeah. and stuff. Because yeah. I know when I was uh, when I was in England with the Stray Cats, uh, there was a few shows that they had at the uh, Elk Center at 15th and Fitzwater. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure they didn't get permits for any of that stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. then none of the, the all-ages shows had permits. No, none of, I mean, I did shows in throughout the late 80s and into well into the 90s, and we had no permits. We just come rented on, the come space. On. All right. I think was great about, uh, you know, doing a Ha Club and the Eastside Club. It was like basically starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. You know, when with the hot club was starting from scratch, it was not there was no scene, there was nothing. You know, it was just you know people. It was just you know, me and a couple people I knew, and me conning them into putting on bands I wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. It's basically what it comes down to, yeah. you know. Yeah, but it worked. I wanted to see all these bands. 
And, you know, I can't go up to New York every week. So, you know, hey, why don't we do some here? <laughs> yeah, but your desire to have that just for yourself winds up affecting so many other people who beget other people and other people and other people. Yeah, I mean, what you I, did... I had that faith in, in it. You know, when I heard it, I said, oh, man, this is fucking great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you were doing in the 70s and 80s, has, has, there's been a straight line from then. Like, you can trace back all of these different people. I mean, I look at the folks who were doing shows. Yeah. When I was a young person like Chuck Meehan, who would have been coming to things that you did, and you know, and so on and so forth, and then moving forward, there is an unbroken line of people doing But I, I think that people actually made that happen, even, you know, after me, would have to be like Chuck Meehan and uh, Lenny. Again, taking the independent thing and mm -hmm. bring it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Because here I'm already working for other people, you know, like it was not that it was corporate, but like I understood what they were coming from on that end. And and these guys were, were taking it back to the street, mm -hmm. and which was necessary. So you, you have to keep on going back to the street to keep it vital. Yeah, yeah. Because if you don't do that, then you lose, lose sight of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, super. I, uh, I mean, I appreciate you talking to me. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. And, uh, oh, yeah. Sitting down here. I like getting everything straight, you know, and make sure everybody gets to do. Yeah. You know, because I mean, like, how else are people going to remember uh, Chuck Meehan and, 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 Len, and, and Len, Lenny Bandak? If it's not for that, you know, people talking about, you know, it's not like they had write-ups in the paper or anything or mm -hmm. like... I mean, local papers and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, well, even if they it's did, it's all those word of mouth. Lost you know, how many mind. people even knew who these guys were? Yeah, because they it wasn't like they were up there trying to get, the, you know, say, "Hey, I'm the leader." They, you know, it's all on the on the quiet. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, they didn't want you know. It wasn't like they needed the attention. Mm -hmm. It was all, you know, like I said, for the love of music. Right. Well, the idea of these interviews is that it's the interviews act as a mosaic, that they're all pieces of people from all different time periods that when heard together or even just in parts kind of give you a, a broader spectrum of what happened in Philly at the time, partially to kind of document the history from the people who actually lived it and did it, and also partially to inspire other people who listen to say, this guy did it, he is not a demigod, he's a human like me, therefore I can do it, you know, I can do these sort of events. Uh, Right, it's kind of yeah. like what you're doing. You know, you're doing it because you you love the music, right? Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. It's not yeah, because yeah. you're making a ton of money on this shit. No, no, no. no. I mean, I it's have because you job want, here. and it's because you want it to be right. You want, yeah, yeah, exactly. and you yeah. want to know the yeah. right. And I want to pay homage to the people who who came before me and did these things, and also that's give, all, give credit to the people who come after me who have kind of kept these things. Because alive. you learn from the people who come before. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's always, history is a really most important thing because you have to go back. It's like, you know, you like something, it's like a domino theory going backwards, you know. Mm -hmm. One leads to another, and then you find yeah, out. Yeah, that's exactly the, how it's worked. And I think that a lot of I have uh, some a lot of younger people listening to these interviews who want to know the history of Philadelphia. How did they get to where they are now? And it all goes back to people like you who did these things. And to Dino the dog. It all goes back to music junkies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I imagine you have an amazing record collection. I did at one time, yeah. Uh, no more? I got, I, what I did is like, uh, I put everything on, uh, on, on CD and I burned just the tracks I like. So I got like about 4,080 minute CDs of just every, every track I like. Did you get rid of all your vinyl? I sold it all because I, you uh, know. It hurts. I wish I knew you. I never, you know, I never became a rich man. 
because I didn't have, I wasn't one of the stab in the back kind of guys, mm -hmm. you know. So I never really made the money I should have made, Bad. or could have made. <laughs> I had but, fun, and you know that was. A, but I, I'm happy with. I, I have no regrets because you know I don't think I would have had as much fun, right? If I would have done it any other way, you know. And for me, it's more about enjoying life than how rich you are. I think, yeah. you know, it's more. You're more successful if you're doing something for your whole life that you love doing. And, and it's not about the money. It's just about like enjoying every day your, of your life. Absolutely. Rather than like you know, you know, working slaving at something you hate doing mm -hmm. just to make the money, and then like you know, retire and you can't do anything anymore. Right, right. And then you did. I'm telling you, you can't do it. You got to do it. like <laughs> I would. Whatever you were thinking of doing, do it now. You know, wherever right. you want to go, do it now because when you get to my age. Physically, you just don't feel like, you know, it's just not there anymore, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're looking really good for your age, I'll give you that. Oh, yeah, but let me tell you, I feel a lot of days I feel like an old man, you know? But in my mind, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. You you know, still my mind's still there. Yeah. No, I think that very clearly comes through. See, I never grew up. I never changed. You know? I still like the same things I liked when I was a kid. But this is good, because it clearly has kept you very I youthful. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's... Being true to yourself, you know, is more, it's a harder thing to do than anything else. Uh, and you got to make sacrifices sometimes. Like I, basically, I sacrificed having a family, you know, like having kids. Because I, I just wanted to live the way I wanted to. I wanted to do what I wanted to. And I figured if I got rich, then I'd have kids. If not, then fuck it. I don't care. I don't, you know, it's not an ego trip for me, so. Yeah, I, I understand that you know. completely. But, uh. I enjoyed everything in life. I have very few regrets, you know. And that's great. Well, I guess you we'll know. leave it at that. And and again, thank you very much for doing. Because all the all the all the creative people I, I came in contact, you know, like, all through these years, you know, like, in all different aspects of, you know. Yeah, that's an amazing roster of people that you've yeah. mentioned. Yeah, you know, because that you know, being you know, like being a DJ, you brought me in touch with actors and and athletes and stuff like you know, just. Yeah. Like I said, it's like, you know, creative people want to intermingle. It's like, so, you know, I could have never met all these, you know, thousands of famous people. I mean, when I think back about it, it's like. Yeah, yeah even one of those people is just amazing to hear about. But the, but the great breadth of them is, is yeah, astounding. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly write down how many famous people I've met, you know. Not that it matters, you know. It's just like, I just got lucky that way, you know. Mm. So I had fun, you know. I'm living on social security, but I don't have I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> Thanks so much. And that's it.